This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Meredith Broussard. She is Associate Professor at the Arthur Carter Journalism Institute of New York University and Research Director of the NYU New York University Alliance for Public Interest Technology. Today, we will be in dialogue about her new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech, published by MIT Press, Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press, 2023. Meredith, it's an honor to be with you today in dialogue. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult? Sure. Uh, I have a, uh, a very interdisciplinary background. Uh, I started my career as a computer scientist. I quit to become a journalist. Uh, and then after many years uh, just writing, I came back to computer science as a data journalist. Data journalism is the practice of finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. Uh, what I do as a data journalist is I write code uh, in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. Uh, and sometimes uh, that involves writing code to investigate other people's algorithms. Uh, sometimes I write my own algorithms in order to investigate a social phenomenon. Uh, and in my in my work, I write about complex technical topics in plain language. And so this new book helps people understand the uh, complex world of artificial intelligence and how it intersects uh, with very human issues like race, gender, and disability. As you develop this manuscript, can you tell us about the work process that you underwent? For example, did you edit at the end or do you edit as you go along? 
Can you tell us about the process of revising that went into preparing this manuscript you know, and how it evolved to the and how it evolved to 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 its final expression? Yeah, I talk with my students a lot about the writing process uh, because I I teach writing primarily. I mean, I teach coding also, but I teach coding in order to write. Uh, and so I think it's really important for writers to have a keen sense of what works for them in terms of process. So when I was writing More Than a Glitch, I, I sold the book based on a proposal. Uh, in the proposal, I had the outline of the book uh, and then I started writing according to that outline, and then I changed the outline. Uh, and I have a process where I like to do about four drafts uh, before I get to a point that I'm happy with something. Um, and a couple of those drafts involve feedback from a trusted reader. Um, so that was kind of high level the process that I went through. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? So the book is about understanding, again, the way that technology intersects with race, gender, and disability. And what I do in it is I tell a number of stories uh, that show the way that artificial intelligence is being used and misused in today's world. Uh, I look at the way that police are using AI and other technologies uh, as part of surveillance and why that gets, uh, why that surveillance technology gets weaponized against people of color, uh, especially when it comes to technologies like facial recognition. Um, I look at uh, the use of computers, of machines in uh, in the justice system, uh, I look at medical racism and the way that uh, medical racism gets embedded in AI systems that are used in medical diagnostics. Uh, so for a very long time, we've had this uh, this kind of default bias that I call techno-chauvinism. That's the idea that technology is superior uh, that technological solutions are superior to others. Uh, and what I would argue is that we should think instead about using the right tool for the task, because sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer, and sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap, right? And so when we default to, oh, we have to use computers because it's so much better, we don't always make good decisions, and we especially don't always make good decisions that take into account all of the very human problems that we know about. And those human problems get embedded in our technological systems in part because we all have unconscious bias. You write as follows on page 181. Public opinion is turning against surveillance culture. So is some art. Indigenous futurism, Afrofuturism, African futurism, Desi futurism. Arab futurism, Asian futurism, South Asian futurism, and Shikana futurism are all gaining visibility in visual arts, fashion, film, and literature. Many of these movements engage with alternative visions of the future that move beyond our current glitchy, biased situation. Can you clarify what you mean in this passage? Sure. I, one of the things that I think is really important for people to realize is that the 
mainstream conventional view of what the future will look like is very much a product of the vision of a small and homogeneous group of people, uh, mostly the Ivy League and Oxbridge educated white male mathematicians who uh, gave us computers and or who were uh, the dominant figures in the early development of computers and of computing culture. And there are other visions of the future out there. And so I think it's really important for people to know that there are alternative visions and we don't need to be beholden to one vision of the future for uh, our expectations of what technology can do for us. Uh, so I would love for people to explore uh, alternative visions of the future, like uh, indigenous uh visions of the future are really fascinating to me. Uh, there's an artist named uh, Mimi Onawoha uh, who is doing some really interesting work around uh, texts and visuals that uh, re-envision uh, what AI is or could be. Uh, Stephanie Dinkins is another visual artist who's doing really interesting work uh, on uh, who is uh, who is speaking? Who is the voice uh, that we imagine when we imagine AI speaking? Uh, and if you look at the picture in your mind's eye, when you imagine AI or when you imagine a robot, it's almost never a person of color, right? And so one of the things that Stephanie Dinkins has done in some of her work is she's made a uh, a talking a talking head, a talking android, who is a woman of color. Uh, and she's in dialogue with that uh, that AI-generated uh, voice. And it really shifts the way that, uh, that you imagine whose voice uh, is setting the agenda for our collective future. Who is Sophia Umoja Noble? Can you tell us about her book, Alchemist? Algorithms of Oppression from 2008. Safia Noble is one of the most important thinkers that we have uh, in the critical technology studies space. Uh, her book, Algorithms of Oppression, uh, Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction, Ruha Benjamin's uh, book, Race After Technology, these are the three books that I always recommend to people. I mean, of course, after More Than a Glitch and Artificial Unintelligence uh, by books. Uh, but Safia Noble's book was really the one that in 2018 made people wake up and say, oh, maybe Google is not infallible after all. So her book looks at uh, racial bias in Google search results. So it used to be that when you would Google the term white girls, you would get pictures of girls. And when you Googled black girls, you would get porn. And it was like this from the beginning of Google search until 2018, until Savia Noble's book came out. Uh, and Dr. Noble explored why uh, why this is a product of white supremacy, uh, why racism is uh, baked into uh, all of our technologies, including search algorithms. Uh, and the impact of the book was enormous, uh, so much so that Google 
actually changed their search algorithm to respond to it. And you no longer get images of porn when you search for the term black girls, which is great. Uh, so Google deserves credit for updating their systems in response to uh, the scholar's really important findings. Uh, one of the uh, issues that I have with it, though, and one of the issues that I have more broadly with tech is that uh, when an issue like this arises, what the tech companies tend to do is they tend to put in a little patch. They tend to uh, treat situations like this as, uh, as glitches, as momentary bugs. And when you think about the difference in importance between a glitch and a bug, a bug has you know, has major import, it deserves like a ticket, it deserves investigation, whereas a glitch is just a blip, it's not that important, uh, it can just be addressed in the code. So what the Google engineers are doing though is they're not addressing the underlying issues of, uh, of racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, ability bias in the code, uh, they're just slapping a patch on it. So what I think we really need to do is we need to look at our assumptions about algorithms, our assumptions that algorithms are infallible. Uh, we need to question that assumption and we need to redesign our systems so that uh, we work against uh, the biases that we know exist in the real world. And if it's not possible for the algorithms to effectively say govern a system, we need to not rely exclusively on those algorithms. What are the consequences of your findings for individuals with disabilities? Can you explain the ramifications of the phenomena that you present in this book for the deaf and for the blind and for people with other impairments? So when I was writing this book, uh, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on uh, race and gender, but I did not know enough about disability. Uh, and so I'm really grateful to the scholars and the activists uh, who shared their stories with me, who helped me learn more about uh, about disability and specifically about disability justice. Uh, and so what I heard uh, in listening to people and kind of elevating the voices of those who uh, have been doing this work for many years, what I heard was that technology is really great for increasing accessibility and also there remains a lot of work to be done so i talk about the story of uh richard dan who worked at an apple store in maryland uh and was given some technology uh as an accommodation in his job uh because he's deaf and uh, when he needed to uh, communicate with patrons who were uh, who were hearing, then you know often it would work well to like type back and forth on an iPad. Or uh, there is a thing that Apple does where it's uh, real time uh, real time interpretation over uh, over audio and video. And that is an update of a technology that we've had for a really long time called Video Relay Chat. Uh, so there are some accommodations that work really well in uh, in some situations. But 
Richard ran into a situation where the technology did not work well, and that was in team meetings. Uh, because in the team meetings, uh, which happened before the store opened, and they were a way for the staff to kind of communicate about uh, new technologies, to uh, you know, to learn together as a community. Uh, what the manager wanted for Richard in that situation was for a colleague to type what was going on, right? Because Richard couldn't hear what was going on, and uh, that does work well when you have a dedicated scribe who is taking notes about, say, what the professor is saying in the front of class, or if there had been a scribe who was, uh, you know, was writing down what the speaker was saying at the front of the staff meeting. But it did not work well when it was uh, an Apple product that was doing text or doing speech to text because of the acoustics. The speaker the physical speaker can't pick up on what on which human speaker is of greatest importance right so it's going to pick up on the sound coming from the person next to you as opposed to the person at the front of the room or the colleague who is tasked with uh with taking notes would need to be involved in the meeting instead of being devoted to taking notes. So it simply wasn't working as well as it needed to. The whole system was not working as well as it needed to. And Richard said, I, I really need a human interpreter because that's the right tool for the task in this situation. And I, the manager said no. And I, and this was, like to me, this was an example of people getting stuck on the idea that technology is the best solution in every situation. Uh, it would have been better and easier to just pay for a human interpreter uh, to come in and interpret in sign language what was happening at the staff meeting. It's a relatively cheap solution. Uh, it costs a little bit less per hour than uh, a power cord uh, for an Apple computer. And so it's a really good illustration of what happens when people get stuck on the idea that technological accommodations are everything that's needed for the case of disability. There actually is no one-size-fits-all approach to disability, and so we shouldn't imagine that there's a one-size-fits-all technological approach as well. Can you tell us about the film Coded Bias by Shalini Kantaya? What is notable about it? Coded Bias uh, is a documentary. Uh, I am in it. Uh, I think it is notable for a lot more reasons besides that, uh, but that is one thing that's notable about it. Uh, so it follows the story of uh, Joy Bolomwini. Uh, Dr. Bolomwini uh, at the time was a graduate student at MIT. Uh, and with uh, Timnit Gebru and some other collaborators did a really groundbreaking uh, paper called Gender Shades. Uh, what Gender Shades is credited with is helping us understand the bias in facial recognition systems. Facial recognition is better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. It's better at recognizing men than women. Uh, it generally does not... Uh, 
include trans and non-binary folks in its uh, in its base data set at all. Uh, and Joy Bull and Winate was uh, the first one to really bring to public uh, knowledge the fact that these systems uh, are so problematic, are so biased. And it led to a sea change. All of the big tech companies uh, woke up and uh, were put on notice uh, and actually did make changes to their systems. Uh, one of the things that I think that's so interesting that came out of this uh, this study, though, is uh, the idea of uh, the appropriateness of facial recognition technology in policing, right? Because uh, what uh, what Joy Bolognini's research has led us to uh, to conclude is that facial recognition technology should not be used in policing at all. So we can use facial recognition for lots of other things besides policing, but uh, it should not be used in policing at all because it is disproportionately weaponized against communities of color. Uh, and a truly just solution uh, would be to cease using facial rec in policing. Can you comment on the issues surrounding the employment of algorithms to determine payouts to NFL players who develop dementia or brain injury complications? Can you elaborate on this issue for the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar? Sure. Uh, so this is in the chapter of my book where uh, I talk about medical racism and the way that I racist beliefs within the world of medicine get translated into algorithmic systems. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, when it became clear that uh, NFL players were suffering in high numbers from post-concussion syndrome, uh, which is basically brain damage from getting too many concussions, uh, the NFL put together a uh, a big pool of money, uh, I think it was several billion dollars, uh, to do payouts to players who uh, who suffered brain damage as part of their uh, employment by the NFL. And there was a formula that was used to calculate who got how much money from this big pool of money. But there was a so-called race correction in there where the formula took into account the player's race and used a multiplier so that uh, white players were calculated to get a higher payout than black players, in part because black players were assumed to be coming from a kind of lower cognitive dimension to begin with. Uh, so they according to this formula, they did not, uh, they were not going to have earned as much over the course of their lifetimes, which is a racist belief. And we see this occur over and over again, the idea that there are, uh, that there are biological, uh, biological realities to race. Uh, there are not. I should say, uh, race is not a biological concept. Uh, there obviously are genetics and epigenetics, but uh, race is a social construct, not a genetic one. Um, 
but it often gets used in medical contexts as if it were a biological reality. Right? So we see this in other places, uh, and we need to uh, we need to work against it. Uh, so the NFL payout was an example of this racist medical belief getting translated into an algorithm. And then when we have these kinds of situations and we use, say, medical diagnostic systems, uh, then that racist belief will get translated into the technological system as well, which is obviously a problem. What are the implications of your research for the field of medicine? Well, I, I have been talking to a lot of doctors uh, about the research, uh, and uh, I'm not the first person to uh, to talk about these issues. Uh, one of the things that I do in the book is I collect a lot of the really amazing journalism and scholarship that's been done in the past uh, many years and kind of pull it all together and elevate the work of many interesting people. Uh, so one of the things that I have noticed uh, in talking to a lot of doctors and uh, and folks doing uh, policy on the medical side is that uh, people are talking about these issues. Uh, in the kidney world, for example, uh, there was for many years a, uh, a calculation used to determine when people get on the kidney transplant list. Uh, it's called an EGFR calculation. And when your EGFR number is at 20 or below, then you're eligible to be on the waiting list for a kidney transplant. Uh, however, there was a, uh, a race variable in there, uh, in that equation, and it meant that Black patients were, uh, were delayed getting on the list. Black people had to be sicker than anybody else to get on the kidney transplant list. And so uh, between the time that I sold the book and I published the book, that changed uh, because of the work of doctors and patients and activists uh, who just worked really hard to get uh, that formula changed. And it has been uh, is led to a global reshuffling of uh, people's places on uh, waiting lists for kidneys, uh, and has led to uh, a more equitable environment in medicine. You read as follows on page one sixty one. Think about the spot in your house that descends into chaos without constant attention. Maybe it's your closet. Maybe it's the spot where everyone puts keys and empties out their pockets. There's always a spot, possibly many, that collects chaos. In my apartment, it's the end of the kitchen counter nearest to the front door. It's a fact in the real world, and it's a fact in the virtual world, too. People forget to do things, and there are digital spots that collect chaos. In the real world, you need to regularly clean and organize the chaotic spot. Compliance in an ideal world is the business process that reminds you and requires you to organize the ordinary chaos of doing business while complying with the law. Compliance processes often exist because legal problems have happened in the past and people are trying to prevent similar problems in the future. The processes are slightly unpleasant but crucial. Compliance means that things don't fall through the cracks, that civil rights are not violated, and that companies are following the law. Can you elaborate on this observation? So I'm actually looking at that spot in my house right now, 
And in fact, it is uh, it is a spot of chaos. So we are in a cycle where I really need to uh, go through and clean and organize that spot. Uh, and I think that uh, I have not gone through and cleaned and organized that spot because I have been uh, busy doing my taxes. Uh, and I think that that is, uh, that is the kind of situation that I was talking about. So uh, we all do our taxes. Uh, or okay, those of us who uh, are, well, I'm just realizing that I'm talking out of a US context and I'm talking to you in Canada. So I don't know what tax day is in Canada, uh, <laughs> but uh, tax day in the United States is uh, is April 15th. Uh, and one of the things that I do every year when I do my taxes is I go through and I clean up uh, all of my financial affairs and you know they've been kind of tidy but you know you got to go through and clean them up every so often that's what i do domestically as well that's in an ideal world what compliance processes do because we're all pretty forgetful we all uh ignore things uh we let things get a little bit chaotic and when you are a company you can't do that. Like you can't let things get chaotic because then civil rights get violated. And so the process of compliance is kind of a necessary evil. Uh, we we don't really like going through and doing compliance reports and, or accreditation processes or whatever the uh, whatever the processes are in your particular uh, industry. I mean, okay, maybe you do like doing those. I don't personally like doing these things, but they're important. Uh, and uh, that's why we have these processes because uh, problems have occurred in the past. We are all human uh, and uh, we need to prepare for the inevitable. Who is Robert McDaniel? What befell him? So Robert McDaniel is the subject of one of the chapters of the book where I write about uh, the use of technology in policing. Uh, so he is a Chicago man who one day got a knock on his door and it was the police. And they said, uh, we have used an algorithm to determine that you are going to be involved in a shooting in the future. Like whoever lives at this address, which I guess is you, are going to be involved in a shooting in the future. We don't know if this means you're going to be the shooter or you're going to be shot, but our algorithm says uh, gun incident, uh, whoever is living in this house. Right? This was a predictive policing or precision policing algorithm. And uh, Barbara McDaniel said, no, thank you. I am not interested in your algorithm or its findings, and uh, you know, please leave me alone. Uh, but the police kept coming back. Uh, they would come back with neighbors. They would come back with offers of interventions around, uh, you know, getting him into job programs or getting him into uh, gun safety programs. And every time he would say, "No, thank you. I'm not interested." Uh, well, over time, they came back so often 
And they would park their cars right outside his house. And it was very visible to everybody in the neighborhood that the police were there at his house. And so he got a reputation in the neighborhood as being a snitch, as being a police collaborator. And eventually, yes, he was shot uh, for being a snitch. And and then he recovered. And then it happened again. Right. So the the cause of him being involved in gun violence was the police using their algorithm to put a spotlight on him. Right. And that is not what anybody wants out of a, a policing system. That's not actually helping the public good. And so I think that we need to uh, take a really hard look at what kinds of technologies police are using. We need to be honest about how poorly they work. And uh, in most cases, we need to roll it back. What is your personal definition of the term techno-chauvinism? Techno-chauvinism uh, is a kind of bias that says that technological solutions are superior to others. And again, I would say, use the right tool for the task. There's a quotation on pages 51 and 52 that I'd be curious to ask you about. You write, you write as follows. Many people imagine that using more technology will make things quote-unquote fairer. This is the idea behind using machines instead of judges, an idea that surfaces periodically among lawyers and computer scientists. We see it in the adoption of body-worn cameras, an initiative that has gr been growing since LAPD officers brutally assaulted Rodney King in 1991, and the attack was captured on a home camcorder. There is an imaginary world where everything is captured on video, where there are perfectly fair and objective algorithms that adjudicate what happens in the video feed. Facial recognition identifies bad actors, and the heroic police officers go in and save the day and capture the bad guys. This fantasy is taken to its logical conclusion in the film Minority Report, where Tom Cruise plays a police officer who arrests people before they commit crimes on the recommendation that some teenagers with free cognition who are held captive in a swimming pool full of goo. It's just like Minority Report, a police officer marveled to sociologist Sarah Brain when the two were discussing Palantir's policing software. What makes the situation additionally difficult is the fact that many of the people involved in the chain are not malevolent. For example, my cousin, who is white, was a state police officer for years. He's wonderful and kind and honest and upstanding and exactly the person I would call on if I were in trouble. He and his family are very dear to me and I to them. I believe in the law and I believe in law enforcement in the abstract in the way that many people do when they have the privilege of not interacting with or being targeted by law enforcement or the courts. But the origins of policing are problematic for black people like me, and the frequency of egregious abuses by police is out of control in today's United States. Police technology and machine fairness are the reasons why we need to pause and fix the human system before implementing any kind of digital system in policing. Can you elaborate on this observation for us? Sure. Uh, I think that one of the things that uh, that people get wrong about computers is they assume that computers are going to uh, be able to make the right decision in every situation. And uh, they're not. 
Like that's what the book is about. It's about like don't uh don't trust the computer for everything, only trust the computer for some things. Uh because we need more nuance in our thinking a lot of the time, especially around uh social situations like ones where uh police are involved. Uh we need more nuance and in the real world, many things can be true at the same time. Uh, in the computing world, that's that's not necessarily true. Uh, so the anecdote that I open the book with uh, is, is what I think about a lot when I think about competing definitions of fairness, right? So when uh, when I was a kid and there would be one cookie left in the cookie jar in the kitchen, I my brother and I would fight over who got the last cookie. And any any parent knows that uh, you know you you have to handle this situation in a very specific way. And so if you were a computer and you were given this as a word problem, you know, two kids, one cookie, uh, you the computer would say, okay, well, you divide the cookie in half, each child gets 50% of the cookie. And that is absolutely true. That is a mathematically fair decision. But in the real world, when you divide a cookie in half, there is a big half and a little half. And then my brother and I would fight over who got the big half or the little half. And, you know, it was chaos. Uh, and if I wanted the big half, I would say to my brother, OK, you give me the big half now and I will let you pick the TV show that we watch after dinner. And my brother would think for a second and he would say, that sounds fair. And it was. It was a socially fair decision. Right? So there's a difference between mathematical fairness and social fairness. Computers can only determine what is mathematically fair. And so when we have a social problem, uh, we can't necessarily go in and solve it with computers. Right? We need to be aware of what kind of fairness we are trying to achieve uh, and this is uh, this is connected to uh, larger conversations around using uh, computing and uh, and using surveillance technology, especially in policing and in the justice system, because when we have things like recidivism algorithms, like the compass algorithm that allegedly predicted the risk that somebody would uh, commit another crime after being arrested, um, these algorithmic systems have uh, racial bias embedded in them, right? So we can't just blindly accept that what the computer says is true. We need more nuance in our conversations. What does your book teach us about bias? What would you like your readers and your listeners to gain from what you are trying to impart to us about bias. I will be really happy if we start having more collective conversations about bias and about the way it manifests inside our technological systems. Uh, I think for many years, there's been this uh, this techno-chauvinist uh, default of, oh, if we're using a computer, we must be uh, innovating. And in order to progress, we have to use more computers. We have to use more technology. Uh, we're at a really interesting point now where all of the problems that are easy to solve with technology have been solved. Uh, the ones we're left with are very difficult. And so 
we can't just assume that we're going to be able to write code against them. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your next current research project? What are you working on now? Where has your attention gone since completing this book? So I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, have a lot of conversations like this uh, to talk to people about the book. Uh, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a little bit more of that, uh, and then I'm going to really zero in on education. Uh, I'm planning on uh, doing my next project on algorithms in education and helping educators and policymakers. Uh, understand the implications, especially around bias, of uh, of using different kinds of algorithms in education. I wish you the very best in such Thank endeavors. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Meredith Broussard, she is Associate Professor at the Arthur Carter Journalism Institute of New York University and Research Director of the New York University Alliance for Public Interest Technology. Today, we have been discussing her newly published book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech, published in Cambridge, Massachusetts by MIT Press, Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press, 2023. Thank you.